Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like cabbage, attics, and attention. We'll we'll keep people's attention, Sam Willis. We'll keep people's attention and we'll lock some cabbages in an attic, I think. (laughs) Very good. Or we we could do groups, soups, and hoops, or... Loop the loops, troops and dupes. <laughs> dupes is all about the history of tricksters. I think we should do the history of yeah. tricks. Yes, can do that very much. History so. of Go tricksters. On. However, however, there is a point to this because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of resolutions, yes, resolutions, is in fact all about leafing through old notebooks. It's about spiritual purity and the self-improvement and self-denial movement. It's about sobriety, John Wesley and English Methodism. It's also all about Tudor England and power. It's about paranoia and Victorian failure. And it's about medieval shoe-throwing and jumping beans. (laughs) Did you know that? <laughs> it is. Yep. Of course it is. Or that the history of divorce, who knew? The history of divorce is, in fact, all about Henry VIII, the king's great matter, and the break with Rome. That was one of our recent homeschooling episodes. Absolutely was. Not um, not one of our most abstract histories of the unexpected, that. But um, we've got some crackers coming up. Um let me just tell you of my fellow presenter. If history were a house, this man would be the surveyor, measuring it to see if it is found wanting. He is the artist who would paint it, the builder who would mend it, the photographer who would capture it to share its beauty for all eternity, the plumber who would mend its broken pipes with the spanner of research, the tiler who would mend its mosaic floors with the grout float of investigation. He is the handyman of history itself. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daber. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello, Sam. How are you? Are you OK today? I'm fine. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. Well, you may well be wondering. You won't be wondering because we've just announced who he is. But you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell. 
co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a house-related historian, he'd only be the Frank Lloyd Wright of the historical world, visionary American architect who did so much to define modern dwelling and American living in the 20th century. So talented is he in building up the edifice of the past, so skilled (laughs) with the factual bricks and mortar of the house of history. This man will not only lead you up the garden path, but he'll open the front door, lead you down the (laughs) corridor and into the parlour of the past. There is no more welcome guest in his home of history than your very good selves, dear listeners. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very good. Hello, everyone. He will lead you up the garden path of history to his front door. We are doing the history of houses. Um, I, I, do you remember why we decided on this, James? You emailed me saying we're going to do oh. houses. <laughs> ah. Oh, I tell you why. I was um, doing one of my um, sort of talking heads on a documentary where I have to be uh, I have to know everything about everything in the whole of history. Hmm. And one of the topics I was being grilled upon was the history of houses. Having um, uh, done the history of tools and tech was another one. But I was doing houses, so I thought um, we should do it because I came across a really interesting um, ancient city in Turkey, which I'll talk about later, which I'd not heard of. But it was um, it, it's the, kind of the first example of a city built when everyone had their own home. I thought that was very interesting. And I, I suddenly realised that when well, the director wanted to, to kind of think about different ways that he could he could investigate houses for his TV programme. So I had a quick brainstorm and uh, helped him out. And I realised that, uh, you know, development of houses is so much to do with behaviour within houses that you can't ignore the people in them. Uh, and if you open your eyes to how people... Um, live in houses and how those uh, those habits change uh, there's a a fascinating history to be written so that's where it came from you're Ooh. right it was entirely my fault lovely no but your your fault your your inspiration and it sent me off in lots of different directions the first was to go to to reach as as i often do to my bookshelves, and Bill Bryson's At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Uh, I'm a huge Bill Bryson fan, always have been, Um, and I've been listening to this on Audible uh, at the moment, and it's a a phenomenal book. It's organised in a way that you'd you'd expect it. Uh, It's organised by room by room, so it very much takes the house... And sort of pulls it apart and looks at the year, the setting, the hall, the kitchen, the scullery and larder, the fuse box, the drawing room, the dining room, the cellar, the passage, the study, the garden, the plum room, the stairs, the bedroom, <laughs> the bathroom, and so you go on, uh, the dressing room, the nursery and the attic. And I think the, the, the idea that he had about writing this book was it was a book that he could do from his home. And he sort of found himself sitting in his house one day and he thought, you know, I don't really know much about my surroundings and where I'm, you know, and the explanation for the different rooms and the different things that are in it. And wouldn't that be interesting? And one of the lovely things that I that I got about, that I got out of this, was that he... Um, that it struck me that it's so like what we do in Histories of the Unexpected. 
And he said, houses are amazingly complex repositories. What I found, to my great surprise, is that whatever happens in the world, whatever is discovered or created or bitterly fought over, eventually it ends up one way or another in your house. Wars, famines, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, they're all there in your sofas and chests of drawers, tucked into the folds of your curtains, in the downy softness of your pillows and the paint on your walls and the water in your pipes. So the history of household life isn't just a history of beds and sofas and kitchen stoves, as I vaguely supposed it would be, but of scurvy and guano and the Eiffel Tower and bedbugs and body snatching and just about everything else that has ever happened. Houses aren't refuges from history, and I love this. They are where history ends up. So it's almost mm. like this idea of... Yeah, you know, of the house as archive, things coming into the house. So that got me, that got me thinking. And then I was also thinking, and I don't know whether I've talked about this in the past, but often the practice of history itself is conceptualised as building a house. And if you think about those two great Regis professors of history at Cambridge University, J.B. Bury and Geoffrey Elton, who we've talked about lots, Geoffrey Elton in his Practice of History and Bury in his um, Science of History, or History as a Science, um, you've got this idea that Basically, historical method is very similar and revealing the truth about the past is really similar to building. So historical knowledge is about is similar to building a house with bricks and mortar. So each published piece of research is a brick. The work of the historian is therefore very similar to that of a skilled craftsman. Um, and so basically you build up this ever sort of larger edifice. You've got historians are visualised as labourers. Elton talks about students as journeymen. So basically you, you, you work on your own little brick and then that brick goes into the fabric of what is history. And I've got a lovely, um, a lovely quote here from, from J.B. Bury. Uh, the, from the science of history. Beyond its value as a limiting, controlling conception, the idea of the future development of man has also a positive importance. It furnishes, in fact, the justification of much of the laborious historical work that has been done and is being done today. The gathering of materials bearing upon minute local events and the collation of manuscripts and the registry of their small variations, the patient drudgery in archives of states and municipalities, all the microscopic research that is carried on by armies of toiling students, it may seem like the bearing of mortar and bricks to the site of a building which has hardly been begun, of whose plan the labourers know but little, this work the hewing of wood and the drawing of water has to be done in faith, in the faith that a complete assemblage of the smallest facts of human history will tell in the end. The labour is performed for posterity, the remote posterity, for remote posterity, and when with intelligible scepticism someone asks the use of the accumulation of statistics, the publication of trivial records, the labour expended on minute criticism, the true answer is 
that it is not so much our business as the business of future generations. We are heaping up material and arranging it according to the best methods we know. If we draw what conclusions we can for the satisfaction of our generation, we never forget that our work is to be used by future ages. Blah, 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 blah. Um, it is intended for those who follow us rather than for ourselves and much less for our grandchildren than for generations very remote. For a long time to come, one of the chief services that research can perform is to help to build um, at some of the countless stairs by which men of distant ages may mount to a height unattainable by us and have a vision of history which we cannot win standing on our lower slope. How's that for history of houses? <laughs> history is a house. History, history is, is a, a house. house. A history of houses. It's very complicated, though. I'm not quite sure uh, how to unravel that. But it's very good. The house is a metaphor for history. Um, exactly. Impressive stuff. We're bricklayers, Sam. We are, we are. historical bricklayers. I um, nearly set fire to our house once. Oh, no. How did that happen? Yeah. I, I, Oh, I was what, really, with a really, large... truly, like, like sort of um, matches, yes. matches. Yes, I was about twelve. Oh, um, and I was playing with some large barbecue matches. <laughs> not, not to be encouraged. Anyone listening? Um, no. You know, you get those the long, the long ones, are like a foot long. Yes. Um, and I was going out to light the barbecue, I think, but I did it inside the house, and just as a, just to see what happened, I think. And um, obviously one of the match heads caught. And then before I knew it, I was standing there with like a, a, a monstrous burning torch of matches with a kind of three foot flame. And I dropped it on the carpet and then that caught light. Uh, but we um, managed to put it all out and the house was saved and no one was injured, which is good. <laughs> um, which made me think a little bit about how one behaves in a house, James. Would you say that lighting barbecue matches in a house is appropriate behaviour? Well, I would if you then stepped outside and didn't singe the carpet. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, but yes. it also gets quite interesting if you say it in this kind of thing. So, if you, if you, if your house is the people's house, it's the House of Congress, ah. and you're, you're, you're an American, you're, you're sorry, you're a British troop uh, in eighteen fourteen, then setting fire to that house is an entirely appropriate thing to be doing. Which is what they did. And that made me think about the uh, January insurrection and the People's House and how, how people treated um, this home, this house of American democracy, so unbelievably appallingly. Um, and you've got these, you've got this, the violent insurrection of January the 6th, people smashing the windows, uh, people sitting in seats they're not supposed to sit in, uh, people moving down corridors they're not supposed to sit in. Um, in your house, James, at home, do you have your own seat? Uh, do you have any, any kind of area that's I don't restricted have, to I you? I don't have anything that's my own in our house, no. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I have I, my favourite places I want to go, but they're often they're often occupied by other people. <laughs> um, like, do you, I remember with my, my grandparents, though, you know, we'd go to my grandparents' house and, and my grandfather definitely had a seat and it was at the head of the table. His seat was different to everyone else's seat mm. uh, and that was very much his um, and I, my, my grandmother also had a different kind of seat at a different location. And there were sort of there were rules and regulations about how to behave in their house, which didn't exist in our house, hmm. um, which was quite interesting. I don't have it with my parents now. Um, so I suppose that's been lost some, somewhere somewhere along the generations. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is how do you know how to behave 
in a house that's full of rules. And and you, you have to be taught. Which brings me to William Tyler Page, who is a very interesting chap. He was a, he was a clerk at, uh, at, at um, the House of Congress in America. Decades of experience of the running of it all. And what happened is that he, he experienced a complete chaos that happened uh, following the 1914 elections because there were so many new members elect in 1914 that there was basically an army of new politicians who all arrived and they had no idea what to do because none of them had ever served in public office before. Very unusual time. Um, and uh, it made me wonder, you know, when else that's happened, certainly in, in British history. But here we are in American history. You've suddenly got a huge influx of politicians representing the people, but they don't know what to do. They don't know the rules, the regulations, the traditions of the building, of the house that they are in. And so he um, wrote a book He uh, and he, he, how, he, he organised um, the, the, what's known as the house's formal orientation. And he did that for the first time in 1921. Uh, and there's some really interesting... Uh, um, I'm not surprised you needed to be taught how to do it. If you look at how you're supposed to behave mm -hmm. at the Houses of Congress and all of the various different things you're supposed to be doing. But one of the things I really liked was, was having a desk lottery. Um, wonderful idea. So this is all to do with picking a desk and how you go about doing it. And also bearing in mind that... that in the 19th century, there were best locations to have a desk, ideally close to the rostrum where a member could hear the proceedings, also be easily recognised by the speaker. In practice, though, what happened is that people knew the system, the, 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 those who arrived early had, had access to the best desks. Anyway, it changed to having a, um, a lottery to avoid illicit desk trading, which I thought mm. would appreciate you'd appreciate, James. Um, and so that happens in 1845. And what happens is um, you, you have this desk lottery. It becomes a ritual where a blindfolded page, who is a young person who's worked in the house, runs errands like a runner, draws slips of paper from a mahogany box, um, which establishes the order in which members choose their desks. And that ran from 1845 all the way up until 1913, when um, when the house, the People's House of America, installed this modern kind of theatre-style seating. So I greatly enjoyed that. Um, also, other stories of the house and how rooms have changed, people collapsing and dying, and, and uh, sort of anti-rooms being temporarily turned into sick rooms. I thought that was fascinating. Um, but then particularly, of course, you have this... Um, uh, it, it, all, it all really changes when 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 the British burn it down in 1814. Now, there are, th this is interesting because it's also relevant to what's happening, the chaos, I think, that's happening in, in British Parliament at the minute, which also has its most extraordinary rules. Um, and, I mean, see, I'd love to interview an MP to find out how you actually learn about what you're supposed to do. So, for example, you are not allowed to call a fellow MP fellow Member of Parliament, a blackguard, a coward, a git, a gutter snipe, a hooligan, a rat, a swine, a stool pigeon or a traitor. And this is, you know, f official guidance for what is considered unparliamentary language. But most importantly is that you can't call another MP a liar. You are never allowed to do that, which is why they're always talking about things like terminological inexactitude or being economical with the truth, because uh, that's the only way you can do it. Um, and it seems to be quite a sensible idea, because 
um, if they were allowed to tell, call each other liars, I think the British MPs would spend their entire time calling each other liars and not doing anything else all day. Um, but there are um, um, official guides now about how to uh, how to behave, where to go, what to do. And it made me think, I bet the same, it's the same with kind of joining the royal household or something like that, or working in the, in the White House. Um, be very, very difficult to get your head around all of the pre-existing rules and regulations for how one should or one should not behave. And it made me think, James, that I should suddenly uh, should instigate some rules in my house. Yes, I tried that uh, and, get, and get laughed at <laughs> very regularly. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Oh, fascinating! You should you should interview Ben Bradshaw about this, our local MP, who's a terrific guy. Um, I think he'd be he'd be the person he'd be the person to tell you all about the rules and regulations in the House of Commons. I reckon mm. he'd be superb. Now, Sam, can I ask you a question? Have you ever discovered a secret room in your house? Oh, in my house? Yes. Um, that's a no. Okay. I have a very dear friend, uh, young Geoffrey, uh, he's called, and he, when he moved to uh, his new house, he bought this lovely uh, Victorian terrace, and it was on, I think they had a basement, they had a first floor, they had a second floor, um, and they had uh, a third floor, Um uh, so that would be the third floor. If you if you say the basement, then ground floor, then second, then first floor, then then second floor. And they were having some work done on the second floor. They were having a sort of bathroom done, blah 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 blah. And there was a shout from the plumber who was sorting some pipes uh, in their upstairs bathroom, and he had put his hammer through the wall into what he thought was the next door neighbor's house. So we shouted for some help. They came up and investigated, and what they had found was, in fact, a room that had been walled up that was at the top of the house. It was, like, the size of a double bedroom. So they literally discovered a secret room that was not on the plans 
of the house. Wow. Uh, immediately wow. adding at least fifty to seventy-five thousand pounds onto the value <laughs> of their house overnight. Um, and nice. and yeah, it, amazing. And so it's now this sort of it's done out. It's got a beautiful view. It's done out as a library. Jeff has a wonderful book collection. Uh, it 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 doubles as a spare bedroom. He's also had in in honour of its secret nature, his wife for uh, a recent birthday got a very good carpenter friend of ours to build him a secret door into it. And there's a little sort of mechanism that you pull a book and then it lifts a latch and then you pull out the you open the door and you go in you go inside to this um to this secret room. So visitors to the house who did not know about it would then discover uh this secret room. So would sort of reenact uh what they did many, many years before. However, uh, intriguing though this is, it got me down another rabbit hole, which was about secret rooms in houses. And this is something that we've we've talked about before and that we've looked at before. Um one of the most famous examples of these is of course priest holes. Priest holes during the Elizabethan period, the Tudor period uh, in Elizabethan England in the uh, late 16th century when Pope Pius V in 1570 um, excommunicated Elizabeth. Um, the toleration and acceptance of English Catholics that had existed before that in Elizabeth's reign was replaced by really much harsher measures to fine and imprison known Catholics who obdurately held their beliefs and were termed recusants, refused to attend the Anglican Church. And basically there were various sort of, uh, you know, uh, attempts to try and trap, to track down, interrogate and execute Jesuit priests who came over to England once Catholicism was outlawed in order to, um, in order to cater for the needs of those Catholics within the country. And they were hunted down by you know, by by uh, priest capturers, uh, people like uh, Richard Topcliffe, for example, who allegedly uh, travelled around with a portable rack for extracting confessions from victims. And what the uh, Elizabethan Catholics did in order to try and hide these individuals was that they built holes or hides, secret sort of hiding places within their houses where these priests might shelter from the authorities. So, and these constructions were all over the house, really. They were in chimney places, in cupboards, rooms. There were complex hide systems, cubby holes and stairways and passages. Uh, they adapted existing features of houses, so for example, a space under a floorboards or a gable end, and there were very skilled specialist hide makers or builders of priest holes um, from this period, such as uh, Nicholas Owen, uh, who was an Oxfordshire recusant who lived between 1562 and 1606. He trained as a carpenter and a joiner. He was affectionately known as Little John because of his trade. Um, but he had brilliant woodworking skills. And what he did was he travelled around Elizabethan England, around the Catholic houses, and built really intricate hiding places for Catholic priests in domestic homes. Um, 
and he worked for over 18 years you know, building these things, working in very cramped and claustrophobic conditions, often at night, in the dead of night, so that he wasn't wasn't detected by the authorities. Um, and there's an account of him by John Gerard in his narrative of the gunpowder plot, um, which is um, which appears in 1607, describing him as. His chief employment was that of making of secret places to hide priests and church stuff in from the fury of searches, in which kind he was so skilful both to devise and frame the places in the best manner, and his help therein desired in so many places that I verily think no man can be said to have done more good of all those that laboured in the English vineyard, for first he was the immediate occasion of saving the lives of many hundreds of persons. And he was noted for his highly complex hiding systems, which were often designed with an escape hatch to allow the occupants a means of escape. And there's a very famous example of this at, at Burwallis Hall in South Yorkshire, uh, which is which he's thought to have built, and there is a catwalk in it, which involves a series of hides that are linked together by an escape passage. Um, Owen gets arrested in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot in January 1606. He is brutally tortured to betray secrets about his fellow English Catholics. He dies in agony uh, without divulging any information he has his guts ripped open by a knife, and according to uh, the priest John Gerard, his, and I quote, bowels gushed out together with his life. Now, there are all sorts of examples of these secret priest holes within Catholic houses from this period, um, including Corton Court, which is a Tudor mansion in Wiltshire and home to the Throckmortons, and some very clever um, historians um, have been using 3D laser scanners to recover the shape and size of these priest holes. And some very sort of wonderful work done on here. There are also some great work done on priest hides in Harvington Hall in Worcestershire. Um, one of the most interesting things that I've uh, worked on is the Tresham papers, the papers of Sir Thomas Tresham, who was a well-known uh, Northamptonshire gentleman who was a Catholic recusant. And in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot in 1605, he does all sorts of uh, redesigns on on the house, and he famously wraps up his family papers in a bound linen cloth, seals them up with hard wax, and walls them up in a closet uh, which had been built in 1596. And they were only discovered centuries later in the early 19th century when a workman, according to the Historical Manuscripts Commission, this sort of commission that was going around the country trying to document all the manuscripts in private hands, describes pulling down a very thick partition wall in the passage leading from the Great Hall, revealing a very large recess or closet in the centre of which was deposited an enormous bundle. And this bundle is full of family papers from 
the Tresham family. Now, the final example that I that I came across uh, is absolutely fascinating, and it comes from Alsace in France, uh, from the Mont Saint Odile Abbey, um, which is a beautiful abbey in a, in, a, in the Vosges Mountains. It's now a, a, a hotel, but it has a really interesting history as a as a monas as an abbey, uh, center of mysticism. Um, it, but one of the most interesting things about it is, I think, its library, and the library is full of rare manuscripts. But between um, August two thousand and May two thousand and two there was a mystery because many of these ancient books and manuscripts went missing from the shelves. So they brought the local police in and the detectives just had no explanation for what was happening. There was no sign of forced entry. It didn't seem that there were any there was any break in, no shattered glass, the locks you know, were intact. So what they did was they changed the locks, they reinforced the doors, and still the books and manuscripts were disappearing. And what they find is they find that um, when they're going around the, the library, uh, one of the police officers pulls back one of the bookshelves and what it reveals is a secret room and it, it reveals a rope ladder that goes up to the convent's workshop. And so what they do is very patiently they lie in wait for this thief and they manage to catch this guy. And it turns out that he was a mechanical engineering teacher who was fascinated with ancient manuscripts and in particularly with you know Latin texts. And apparently he had, working in the archives he had found in the public archives he'd found a secret map of the abbey um, with recorded on it this hidden space and so what he'd done was he'd sort of snuck in and and you know gone into the place and then you know and then basically um hidden all the manuscripts in there um, so they were all safely returned, but it's an example of, you know, a, you know, uh, secret hiding places within your very, within your, your very homes. I'd love a secret room. Wouldn't you, Sam? Mm, I would. What would you do in a secret really room? Would. Well, I'm just trying to work out where I would, whether it would be a kind of, uh, I'd probably have it behind a painting. Ooh. I'd need to move a painting and then and access my, my secret room that way. Gosh, I had a secret cupboard when i was when i was a small boy we had these cupboards under the eaves and i had a cupboard i had one in my bedroom that was in the corner and i put a, a big armchair over it and so it was hidden and then i'd remove the armchair open up the door and i'd built myself a little den in there i remember very clearly the unfolding of the falklands war um and listening to it on the radio uh, when i was a a, a wee lad in my secret den 
Yes. Again, it's a house within a house, isn't yes. it? So you, your, your parents have made, made themselves a house and you they, you found a little bit of identity and location within that house. Um, quite a lot going on. Busy, busy. Um, which makes me think about crowded houses. Ooh, um, you can have overcrowding, obviously slums, very interesting. Um, a lot of uh, crime, darkness, spreads of disease. These are all themes that you can explore. Um, let me talk a little bit about this place called Chatalhuyuk. I probably pronounced that completely wrong, and I'm very sorry. Um, kind of in Anatolia, so Turkey area, around 7,000 BC. It's a kind of seven thousand. You know, it's seriously long time ago, 9,000 years ago. It's a sort of proto city. It's a, it's a collection of buildings. Maybe you've got about 10,000 people living here. So you've got a lot of people living here, and it's unusual because it is composed entirely of domestic buildings Mm. there are no um kind of big monumental things whether it's a ziggurat or a pyramid or whatever you might kind of link with large ancient cities there is nothing there is nothing communal at all everything is a domestic building and i love that there are some really strange things about this um the the buildings are like a honeycomb they they are clustered extraordinarily close to each other a lot of them sharing walls there are no streets the streets are essentially on the roofs there are no front doors um and no windows so they're they're kind of like rectangular cubes and you got in them by going down a ladder through the roof which also acted as the only ventilation so there was smoke going out of the roof as well so very interesting stuff um all of the interior walls were plastered uh, to a beautifully plastered, smooth finish. And th- all of the rooms, all of them, were scrupulously clean when they were discovered by archaeologists, who then found um, rubbish, uh, sort of middens, ruin, uh, in ruins outside, and sewage and food waste. So you have this very interesting early society from you know, <laughs> thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, and they've got a clear and unique perception of houses, and 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 uh, historians and archaeologists are still trying to uncover and understand exactly what they were doing in their rooms. We know they were living there; they were sleeping there. Um, but there is evidence of ritual activity. There's evidence of religion, and. And trying to piece together the different activities from the different rooms is a significant challenge indeed. Um, what I thought of, James, about this was the, the overcrowding, which I thought was interesting. And that made me think about um, how common it was in medieval cities to have... Uh, this is obviously jumping forward thousands of years now, but the idea of overcrowding and living in overcrowded houses in overcrowded cities was very, very common indeed. Um I suppose the best place you can get go to now go to go to to Edinburgh, go and see all the the amazing um, kind of tunnels and and hidden streets that you can in medieval Edinburgh. Great place to see it. Um, I obviously thought about the dangers of such overcrowding, and that made me think about the Fire of London, Great Fire of London, so 1600s, and also the plague, uh, which was um, not aided by such extreme overcrowding. Something we understand now with obviously the passage and the passing of COVID through particularly overcrowded areas. Um, I suppose just a couple of facts to finish with, with the, the, the Great Fire of London. But it, it destroyed so many houses, maybe 13,000 houses, individual houses. 
um, it made an estimated 100,000 people homeless. And I thought that was a really uh, an important place to end because you can spend your entire life writing about houses and thinking about houses in history. But of course, you need to look at the other side of that and consider all of those poor people that were homeless. They did not have a house to go to or at some point in their lives had their house somehow taken away from them. Yes, I think that that, that idea of overcrowding connects with what I was going to sort of very briefly talk about, which is the connection between domestic architecture and everyday private life and this is something I've always been interested in as a historian the intersection of built environment and how people live their lives really and in particular on how domestic architecture you know influences the ways in which people have lived and if you think about this in the west what we see is a decline in communal living and a you know, a trend that's sort of being bucked by increasing numbers of adult children unable to fly the family nest, but really a sort of the rise of private spaces which separated off groups and individuals and different activities, rise of the nuclear family, all of those kinds of things. So I think viewed in in really broad brushstroke terms, the history of domestic dwellings, if, say, viewed over the last 2,000 years, sees this decline of communal living spaces, the development of rooms separated off the main dwelling to be occupied by particular individuals or for particular activities. So if you take as your as your starting point, Sam, the, the, the changing architecture of the castle, the, the, you know, and you know so much about that, communal rooms of the medieval period based on the great hall and customs of of hospitality um you know these were enhanced by new forms of accommodation from the 16th century onwards and what we see is the development of private chambers for sleeping the rise of private closets demarcated spaces for either for prayer or for study and there's a difference between men's and women's closets here and by the 17th century, if you look at architectural plans of, of large houses that survive from the period, you see the development of servant staircases and garrets in the attic, which remove servants from the communal flow of the household, relegating them to passageways and backstairs. And in more modest homes, the huts and one-room abodes of medieval villages give way to multi-room dwellings and the rise of separate rooms for sleeping. And I think we can trace this phenomenon through European architectural styles, as well as that of Japan in the 19th century, which underwent a phase of westernization, and which really influenced traditional forms of house design. And one of the things I'm super interested in is, as a historian who works on the family, women and gender, is how gender plays into this. And the domestic space has long been important in delineating different roles for men and for women around the globe. Uh, and basically, you know, the women traditionally occupy the home as their rightful domain, assuming domestic roles, chores as mothers and wives, mistresses of households, men, you know, their male counterparts conventionally led lives that took them out of the household to the worlds of work or public office or factories or out into the fields. 
you know, a whole manner of things like that. So what I'm interested in is questions of the ways in which architectural developments within the home, for example, the kitchen or the nursery, actually work to demarcate female space and enforce particular roles or behavioural types for women that are connected to places like the kitchen or the nursery. Conventions of dining, for example, which encouraged women to withdraw at the end of the meal, leaving men to sort of quaff and smoke. You know, these are the kinds of sort of traditions and patterns that reinforced gendered separation within the family. And this is a this is a phenomenon that you can explore through somebody like Frank Lloyd Wright, who I compared you with right at the beginning of the episode. So this is a sort of revolutionary American architect who lived between... 1867 and 1959, who did so much to transform the nature of uh, you know domestic household design. You think about his prairie houses that he you know, that he introduced, and you also think about the uh, Usonian houses that he introduced in the early 20th century, and. You know, this is really responding to a transformation in domestic life in the in the US, which sees the decline of servants within households. And it's much more common in this period to have open plan design houses that centre on the kitchen. And and central there are these are the sort of workspaces of of women, you know, of wives and of mothers. And, and are really instrumental in shaping the kinds of roles that they would play within the household. So effectively, that, that kind of open plan space allows them to be cooking in the kitchen while they can be on hand to oversee the children, but also they can be tending to the demands, the needs of guests as they're there at the dining room table eating eating food so in a sense you know what you're having is is a you're having architectural space shaping the lived life of generations of american women and so in a sense architecture perpetuates a pretty stifling form of patriarchal tyranny there so there we are sam there's a sort of trot through um domestic architecture for you Based on the house. Yeah. Um, we could also extend this to look at sleep, sleeping arrangements. But I think we should do sleep as a as a separate podcast one day. Yeah. Yes, I think we could do that. Um, and uh, it made me think, actually, I came across a really wonderful, um, a wonderful description of uh, a deathbed scene, which I think I might save for our episode on corpses. Ooh, <laughs> in lovely. A nice way. I'm excited and about corpses. Yeah, me too. Guys, thank you all so much for listening. And oh, uh, homesickness. I didn't even talk about that. I could have done that. Found a lovely poem about homesickness, but I don't worry. I, it will not go uh, go to waste. I will keep hold of it and bring it up when we um, when we come up with another theme which is relevant. Oh, we should do homesickness. Well, we could just do the history of homesickness. Yes. Why don't we do that? Then? Homesickness and sleeping. I'm making a note, Sam. Homesickness ah, and sleeping. Good. And cabbages. Oh, I want to do holding hands. I want to do the history of holding hands. Um, I, I found um, an interesting 
Uh, oh, it's to do with this um, prehistoric burial they found where they uh, recently up in the northeast, which is good. Oh, and the uh, the kids were, were laid out holding hands. Oh, and I thought, oh, we could definitely do do it. You've been researching anyway, for much corpses. more to come, guys. <laughs> yeah, I have actually. Uh, much more to come, guys. Uh, as ever, I hope you've enjoyed that. Do pl- please follow me uh, on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, the history of the sea, please check out my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. Also, we are on social media on Instagram and Facebook, so come and find us there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for our back catalogue. And if you'd like signed copies of our books. And also, should you wish to be generous and become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, then head over to our page on patreon.com to help support the way in which we are trying to transform the study of history in the past. (laughs) Thank you for listening, guys. guys. Be well. See you soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.